this is the second time that Jesus um, is referring to himself as the Son of Man, and he is predicting his death. He's predicting his suffering. He's predicting his death and his resurrection after three days. You remember the first prediction, and there's going to be a third prediction. This is, this is on the road. This is going to Jerusalem. And so this prediction, this, actually this prediction is probably less specific than all the others, but it has the main elements. The Son of Man, he is going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to be resurrected. And so there's actually a play on words that we find here in what, what Mike just read. Uh, it's easier to see in the Aramaic than it is the Greek, but here's what we have is the Greek of the letter that we have. And what it says is the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men okay so this is actually used in two senses uh, one in the sense that Jesus is a man and he lives among men right and and so he is a mere human among humans but that but that Jesus a man among men is going to be rejected by those men and even more so, it says that, that he's going to be delivered up into the hands of humanity. And that's what he means by, by man. He means humanity. Humanity is going to take him, and he's going to suffer, and he's going to die. Now, this is different than the first prediction. Does anyone know what the difference is? Who was responsible, going to be responsible, Jesus said, for for his death if you remember he said it would be the elders and the chief priests and the scribes but here it's on all of humanity and Jesus says he will be delivered that's a word we understand he's going to be given over but here's the question look at it who delivers Jesus into the hands of men huh is that what it says? It doesn't tell us, does it? Now, we think Jews. Of course, here he's saying humanity. Um, but a language expert that I read uh, was very interesting. He says this is what's known as a divine passive. In other words, this is speaking of God, but it, it does not say his name. Okay? And if that's the case then what is being said is that Jesus is going to be put into the hands of humanity to die and that, that the Father is going to deliver him over to them. And, and that goes with the, the suffering servant, right? Um, actually, what I'm going to call the humble suffering servant And that's very important as he's setting this whole thing up. Jesus is a servant. Why, will, why is God going to hand him over? What? For our salvation. Yes. Uh, to uh, save humanity from sin. 
right? I mean, we see it here. Uh, and, and again, we see this, you know, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned, and it says the Lord has laid on him, okay? The Lord lays on him the iniquity of us all. So there is that delivering over, and it is for, to make inter intercession for our transgressions. Uh, so this is, this is the humble servant of God. This is his mission. It is to save others from their sinfulness. Not those who deserve it, but to save humanity. Okay? And I think that's very important because of what he's going to say here in a, uh, in a minute. So the road to the cross is for the benefit of the very people who are going to put him to death. Now it didn't, it, and it's also the plan of God. Now it doesn't mean that they're innocent. <laughs> doesn't mean they're, they're, you know, well, they couldn't help what they did. No, 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 that's not what it is at all. But we look at this and we say, can this be any more clear? Do the 12 get it? No, they do not understand. Why are they not understanding? What's their problem? not what they were taught about a messiah yes right so so here he is and and they that's not the way they were taught of what a messiah is supposed to be a, 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 a humble suffering servant uh that he's going to go and serve humanity by dying, giving up his life, that's just out of their, they, that's out of their realm of, of thinking. So they're still, they're still like the blind man. Remember, they still need another touch. They're still seeing blurry trees walking around. Uh, they, they're not seeing clearly yet. Okay, now, we set that up. Let's keep going. Somebody read for us verses 33 through 37. Okay, so here they are. Jesus just gave his second prediction that he's going to give his life for humanity. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah. And they're back here, and, and what, what are they arguing about? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Are they getting it? No, folks, Mark just set up a contrast for us of what Jesus' mission is about and what theirs is about. And what they're doing over here is they are seeking recognition. It's like you're, you're totally missing it, right? That's, that's not what the servant of God is about. And so when Jesus, I love this, so Jesus asked them, you know, what are you, what are you talking about? He knew. What does it say? They were silent. This group does not stay silent, do they, Michael? And all of a sudden, they're just quiet. Did you notice Peter didn't say anything after the second prediction, even though he said he didn't get it? You think Peter's going to speak up again after his new little nickname, Satan, right? Uh, and so here we are. And, and, but they knew. They knew this wasn't appropriate. 
Now, let me say this about Judaism. Judaism, really, they, they had a lot of debates over these places of importance. You see it in their lives with people, these dinners, you know, you can see those in, in some of the readings in the Gospels. And, you know, the most important people sit closest to the person who is the honored guest or the honored person, whoever that may be. But they, the rabbis also had these discussions over who would sit closest to the throne of God. And they said, those who are the most just, uh, those are the people who are going to sit closer even than the angels of God to the throne. And so they had these, these debates. So here they are, and these disciples felt a sense of importance. And where did their importance come out of? Jesus. Jesus. Hey, man, these crowds... Man, it's exciting. I mean, these crowds are coming out. Man, this Jesus, he's doing some amazing things. And, and, and also, you know, this, they heard the, the messianic rumblings in the crowds and, you know, in this type of thing. And, and, it's, it, and, and it's like, we're going to Jerusalem. Surely the kingdom's going to come in Jerusalem. And so they have this sense of, okay, we're, we're getting there. And, and there is this sense of, okay, who's going to be the greatest? Who's the one going to sit close to, to Jesus? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there, and when we come to the triumphal entry, you know, mind blown for them, you know, as far as that's concerned. Now, the dispute opened the door for Jesus to teach them something. And it, it's interesting, it says Jesus calls them to himself and he sits down to teach them. And, and that was, in that day and time, that was a seat of authority. Uh, when I'm teaching you sitting down, that is a seat of my back, okay? <laughs> but Jesus, is, he's, he is the great rabbi, and he's going to teach them. The first prediction, if you remember, Jesus taught whoever will save his life will lose it, and whoever will lose his life will save it. It's a paradox. And here we find another paradox. And it's if anyone will be first, then what? Then, then they will be last. So what does he say to the person who is, who is trying to debate whether they're the greatest, think they're the greatest, they're seeking recognition? He says to them, the first will be last. That's, that's what Jesus has to say to them. Jesus is exemplifying that. Jesus is the great, but he also made himself the last. He made himself uh, in this way. So the road to Jerusalem is not paved with glory. It's paved with humiliation. And he teaches them that they must be a servant of all. Yes. They still didn't get it by then, did they? You know, they're still not getting it. No, great, great point. So he says, we're to be servants. And that word servant means someone who waits on or attends to the needs of others. When you go to a restaurant today, some of you, you're going to be have waiters. That's the context uh, around what a servant is. They go around and they serve other people. And, and so the Greek word uh, world considered servants as being demeaning. Uh, it was looked at as undignified. 
Jesus taught the concept of serving others, though, out of love for neighbor. And when we go and we serve other people, and we serve them out of love, then we actually become a visible manifestation of God, of Christ. So that's how we fulfill the ultimate mission of Jesus. And it's totally different than what they had in mind. And so Jesus, to help them a little bit, he calls a child up. Right? And he and, and sits, holds them. And he, he follows up with this other paradox, which is, whoever receives one such child in my name, does what? Receives me. And those who receive me, he says, receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, ancient Jewish and Greek societies did not admire children and their qualities the way we do. It's just a totally different thing. And, and some of that was the, the high infant deaths in that day and time and the need for, for uh, labor. At that, they, just, they just could not be as sentimental as we are with our children in a culture where we don't have to worry about some of the things that they had to worry about. So in Judaism, even, children and women were considered secondary humans. And really who they were was based on, um, was based on their relationship with a man. So uh, in other words, a father or a husband. They were considered vulnerable. They were considered insignificant. They were considered as uh, dependent upon others. So this child is not about humility, uh, an example of humility. It's an example of insignificance. Okay, so Jesus tells them, I want you to welcome the insignificant. I want you to welcome the, those types of people who do not have value in this world, who do not have power, who do not have those things that we often look up to, and that by doing that, we're actually receiving Christ. Okay, that's, that's what surrounds this. All right, somebody go and let's read verses 38 through 41. That's interesting. Jesus is just going all out on humility and, 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 and really just rebukes him. And then John, he tells about this guy that he tried to stop who had been casting out demons in Jesus' name. And what is John's reason as to why he did this? Yeah. He's not one of us hmm. let that soak in for just a minute He's, yeah that's what we're supposed to see that's exactly what we're supposed to see now let me ask you anything now think about last week is there anything ironic about what John just does here What happened last week? What happens when they come down the mountain? What's they arguing about? Yeah, the disciples weren't able to cast out a demon. 
And they have to come to Jesus. Why were we not able to do this? But yet, John now is going to stop someone who is successful. And, and he says that because he's not one of us. It is an elitist attitude. Elitist attitude. On another occasion, and, and let me say this, often we think of John, you know, probably if you were like me, you grew up and you thought of John as that's the one that was loving. You know, John, John, like, oh, he's my favorite. In this kind of, but let me tell you, there's some things about John you need to know. This is one of them. On another occasion, Jesus was not welcomed in a Samaritan city. You know what John and his brother asked Jesus? Yeah. Lord, you want us to call down fire and destroy these people? And, and then we're going to see in a few weeks, James and John are going to argue, or they're going to go to Jesus and say, we want to sit at the right and left hand uh, beside you in glory. What? And it's like, you're going to say that after all of this? Yeah, because they're just not getting it. And so he sees his call as a disciple, as an entitlement, rather than as a servant. And did you catch what John said? He was not following who? Us. He doesn't say, well, Jesus, I told him to stop because he was not a follower of yours. What does he say? He's not following us. He's not in our group. He's not in our circle. What does Jesus say? What does he say? Yeah. Don't stop him. Don't stop him. Anyone acting in Jesus' name, and, and he is empowered by God, do not stop him. Listen. Get out of this elitist attitude. Don't stop God's work. Even if they don't run in our circle. Even if they don't have the same name at the road. Even if they don't have all the, the same, the same uh, things that we believe. But they believe that Jesus, he is God. And they're, and they're doing their best to combat evil. And that's what's happening here. And, and what, what Jesus tells us at one point is, listen, you recognize people by their fruits. Can people be doing something and, and they believe in Jesus, but they're not like us. They don't believe everything we believe, and they're not just, but yet they're out there and they're doing some amazing things. And they are dealing with some very powerful evil that's out there. Do not stop them, is what he says. And then Jesus shifts to the humblest, really, acts of compassion, and it's, it's a cup of cold water. And he says, even if someone were to offer one of my disciples a cup of cold water, he says, even that I will not forget. And he's also letting them know you're going to suffer. And there's going to be a time that you're going to wish you had someone bring you a cup of cold water. Okay, keep going. Somebody read for us verses 42 through.
so there's this interesting set of verses. <laughs> it's just a conglomeration of here, and they're all grouped in this sequence. Of, and there's several catchwords, these mnemonic devices that are intended in this teaching to help them to remember. And, and we find these in the other Gospels. We find these very teachings in other contexts. For example, in Matthew, we read about it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Uh, Luke, tell, you know, Jesus in Luke 14, he, he's talking about the cost of discipleship there, and he uses, he uses this as well. So it suggests that this is something that Jesus continued to teach. And Mark puts it here. He's, he's trying to tell us something else of what we are learning here about ourselves and how we treat each other as, as those who believe in Jesus. And so we start with the saying about causing the little ones to sin. Um, who are the little ones? Huh? Yeah. Yeah, this is not talking about children. Okay? He is referring to his people as little children. And probably those who have a very simple faith, probably this is, it comes right off of, after, you know, John says this to this guy, he's not one of us, and he's saying, look, don't cause them, uh, don't cause them uh, to lose their faith. And, and let me look at this word cause, because I think that's important, this Greek word. It means to cause someone to sin, often with the idea of finality, Okay? This is what we're talking about, a finality or falling away, conceived of as causing someone to stumble and fall. To cause a believer to fall away, he says, is worthy of God's punishment. And it would be, you are going to think it would be better if a millstone, and this is a millstone on the top of this thing they used back in the day, this heavy stone were tied around your neck and you are drowned in the sea, than it is to cause someone who has a simple faith or maybe even a new faith and to cause them to, to fall away because of our own arrogance. And this is a, um, even greater fear among the Jews than it, it is for us because the Jews had a real healthy fear of the sea. They really did. They really feared the sea and, um, and, and drowning was considered just a horrible way to die. In fact, later on in Revelation... You know, it says, then a mighty angel took a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Okay, so that what he's saying here is, is strong. And he's saying, it would be better if that happens to you. Better than what? He doesn't say, we are only to imagine how bad that will be. That, that's that's the, how graphic this is. And so the next few verses... He starts shifting, and he, sh he shifts from, from harming others to mutilating ourselves. Isn't that interesting? You know, lop off his body part or poke out a body part or something like that, and, and it's like, ooh. And, and we need to understand that, um, you know, this is, is not to be taken literally. One sense is that in, in the law, self-mutilation, with the exception of circumcision, it was against God's law. Yes? Yeah, 
right? Yeah, and that may be. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's really an exaggeration that's here, uh, and it's tended to, to heighten the teaching that Jesus has been saying, that God is more important than even the things that we consider as essential. And, and he says something here. Okay, it, it doesn't get any more powerful for us Christians than this. He says, they will be thrown where? Into hell. Into hell. We need to understand a little bit more about hell. One thing is, um, the word hell, it means Gehenna. It's, that's the word. Uh, and, and it is actually a real place. Um, we often think it's somewhere, uh, it's, it's somewhere in the future, but the Jews understood it as, as a place now. They understood this, this terminology, and it's right there in the Hinnom Valley. That's why I mentioned the Hinnom Valley, and it's right there. It's right there where it, where it circles, and this goes way back. It's a steep ravine. It's on the southeast side of, uh, of Jerusalem, and it's where animal sac- I mean, it's where human sacrifice had been practiced during the days of the divided kingdom with King Ahaz and then King Manasseh. It was terrible. It was a very dark time in history. Jeremiah the prophet condemns it. In fact, I want you to go over, I think we'll have time, go to Jeremiah chapter 19, because I think this helps to make sense of this a little bit more. Um, And we're just, we don't have time to really deal with this in our worship hour, so you're getting... You're getting the, uh, the uh, after-hours stuff here. Um, but God is so angered by what the people were doing there in the Hinnom Valley and taking these innocent children and casting them into this area and allowing them to be, be um, sacrificed, to die, to be set on fire for these, these pagan idols, especially Molech. And so God says, one day you're going to get your poetic justice and so here in chapter 19 we'll start in verse 2 and he says and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the potsherd gate and proclaim there the word that I tell you you shall say hear the word of the Lord O kings of Judah inhabitants of inhabitants of Jerusalem thus says the Lord of hosts the God of Israel behold I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle because the people have forsaken me and profaned this place, this place, the Hinnom Valley, by making offerings in it to other gods whom they, uh, neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, and because they have filled this place with the blood of innocents, get that, and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire of burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did I come into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming. He says, here's the judgment that's going to come. That's going to come with Babylon. And he says, this is what's going to happen. When this place, this place, shall no more be called Topath, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And in this place, I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem, and will cause their people to fall by the sword before their enemies, and by the hand of those who seek their life, I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. You get the idea. He's saying, what you have done to the innocent blood, 
He says, one day Babylon's going to come, and I am so angry about this that this place is going to be known as a place of your blood. And, and, and later on, by the way, King Josiah finally does away with this place. He finally has it destroyed, and it's turned into a garbage dump. It is, and it constantly there's fires that are burning in this garbage dump. And, and, and so it became a symbol of divine wrath and, and divine judgment. And so it was a dark memory in the history of Israel. And when he says Gehenna, he understand, they understand this was the place where the innocents were murdered. That their own ancestors did this. They destroyed innocent lives. Don't cause the little ones to sin. I want you to remember hell. In fact, you can go out there and visit it. You can go see it today. But you go out there and you need to understand the seriousness of causing one of my own little ones, one of my own followers, to be disillusioned. This is supposed to be shocking language. And you better believe it is. And so for hell, we often see it as something that's, that's a future thing. They saw it as something that's a reality. And listen, the whole concept here is that God is trying to move the hell out of us. And he's trying to move hell out of me. And he's trying to move hell out of you. That's, that's what this is really about. And he also quotes from the smoldering dump in Hinnom from Isaiah. It's the very last thing he talks about, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Those last two chapters promise salvation through a warning of consequence of rebelling against God. And then the last two verses, and, and we got to hurry, uh, is talking about salted with fire. And I, I've often uh, taught this as salt and fire. It's a purification thing, uh, certainly different than what we're talking about with the Valley of Hinnom. It's seen as a positive thing here. But that really doesn't, doesn't make up for what does it mean to be salted with fire. I think the best that I find, and, and I may be wrong, but I, I think that it has to do with the, the sacrifice. Because the burnt sacrifice that was to be offered, it was to be offered all of it. It was to be completely consumed. And the fire that goes up, it was considered like an incense uh, before God. It, was, it, it had to be completely consumed for it to be pleasing to God. And we also learn in Leviticus 2 that salt is used on all sacrifices. And I think what he's saying here is that God must have a total claim on our lives. And like sacrifice, it must be something that is totally consumed or it's worthless. So instead of consuming others like these little ones, the innocent, he says that we ought, ought to, uh, God should have claim on our lives. You be a sacrifice in that way. Jesus is the suffering servant. He gave up the ultimate sacrifice. He shows us what it's about saving humanity despite their sinfulness. And listen, Jesus knew we were going to do this. He knew we were going to be like this, folks. But he puts his strong language in here because he wants us to get it. He really wants us to get it. It's, this is serious stuff in how we treat each other. Let's pray. 
Father, we come to you this day and we just ask, Father, that, that you continue to watch over us and that you continue to bless us despite our inconsistencies at times and how we, we have failed you and we failed one another. And Father, just help us to continue to realize when we fall. And, and Father, you know we will, but Father, just help us to do what's right. Help us to put all pride away and to continue to grow and to become more and more a servant of yours and so father we just ask this as we get ready to come before you as a church and to worship you and we pray that all those songs in our hearts and everything that we partake in this day will be a sweet smelling sacrifice before you and it's in christ's name we pray amen